Hello and welcome. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Lily. And this is Little Home Organised, a podcast dedicated to helping you declutter, get organised and reclaim time for the things you love. And they all point to the fact that that there is some portion of hoarding disorder that's genetic. I'm going to give a little bit of TMI here, but (laughs) I use this specific soap when I was in labour and now every time I smell it, it takes me back Uh and it actually makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. Before we get into today's episode, we have some exciting news to share. Little Home Organised is launching its first online course. Hooray! We are so excited to be bringing you the Essentials Guide. Bonnie, what's the Essentials Guide? Well, the Essentials Guide is the only guide you will need to declutter and organise every space in your home. So to celebrate the launch of our brand new Essentials Guide, the only guide you'll ever need, we are running a free webinar for our listeners. Now, the free webinar is called Declutter Your Home in Seven Days with tons of free information to help you declutter, get organised and reclaim time for the things you love. So all you need to do is head to littlehomeorganised.com.au forward slash webinar to register your interest there and then register for the webinar. It is on the 6th of October at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. And you may be one of the very lucky people who, after experiencing our amazing free webinar, signs up for the Essential Guide. We are then giving those people the chance to win one of five prize packs from Second Scout. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of Second Scout, they are a company based here in Brisbane and they create beautiful labels. Second Scout's range of organisation labels use not only words, but pictures too. And this means that even the littlest family member can play a part in keeping things organised well before they've learned to read. Made of premium grade clear vinyl and also waterproof, they'll look terrific on your drawers, cupboards, shelves and containers. Even the ones that get covered in finger paint. Discover the full range, including clothes, toys, and arts and crafts at www.secondscout.com.au. Hello and welcome. Today we will be joined by Dr. Randy Frost to talk about hoarding disorder. Randy O. Frost is the Israel Professor of Psychology at Smith College. He has published numerous articles and books, including Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding, and The Meaning of Things, a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the 2010 Books for a Better Life Award. His latest book, The Oxford Handbook of Hoarding and Acquiring, was published in 2014. He has received a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Mental Health Association of San Francisco and a Career Achievement Award from the International OCD Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Frost. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so excited to have you on the podcast, Randy. You have been a bit of a hero of mine for nearly 10 years now. That's how long I have been doing this organizing gig. And you and I last spoke in 2016 when you actually came to Australia and I got to go to one of your all-day lectures on hoarding disorder, which was Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. And after that, you and I got to do a two-hour talkback radio program on 96.5, Talking Life with Peter Janetsky. And that was was one of my uh, bucket list goals. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining (laughs) us again today. Thank you. (laughs) 
Now we're going to, we're going to jump straight into it, Dr. Frost, because we have um, so many questions to ask you and we know time is of the essence. So first things first, everybody wants to know about, you know, their great aunt Mildred, who they think is a hoarder because she's got a cluttered home. Does a cluttered home mean you're a hoarder? Not necessarily. There are several criteria for the diagnosis of hoarding disorder. One of them is the um, inability to discard or let go of possessions. But uh, the DSM talks about, the, the diagnostic code talks about discarding, but what that really means is inability to let go of a possession. Uh, so that's the primary characteristic. But the, the second characteristic is that this produces clutter. So you can have a cluttered home for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of them relate to other um, mental disorders. Some of them relate to medical disorders. Some of them relate to life circumstance. So uh, people who, who have inherited um, a large amount of possessions from, from parents or grandparents who've passed away, their home may get cluttered all of a sudden. And that's not an indication of hoarding disorder. Um, it's only when the clutter is accompanied by this this difficulty discarding and that it's enough that it interferes with their ability to live. And that's really, those are really the key characteristics for hoarding disorder. Mm. Does hoarding disorder run in families? Yes, it does, as a matter of fact. And there have been now close to eight or 10 different kinds of genetic study, studies. There are family studies linkage studies, twin studies, and they all point to the fact that, that there is some portion of hoarding disorder that's genetic. And the, the, some of the latest research suggests that it may be as much as 50% of the variance in hoarding disorder is genetic. So there is a heavy genetic influence. Now, it's not completely genetic. There is some other something else going on that's, that's pr- prompting this behavior. And the other question is, what is what is it that's that is potentially inherited? So there there are a couple of options when we when we take a look at the phenomenology related to hoarding disorder. One of the things we see is some uh, some impairments or some deficits in executive functioning, uh, the ability to make decisions, the ability to categorize. Uh, attention-related phenomena. The, uh, a lot of ADHD is associated here. And so one of the possibilities is that that's where the genetic component comes in, uh, not so much necessarily in the attachment to possessions, but in the, in the way in which the brain is wired, because the brain appears to be wired a little bit differently in, in people who hoard. In fact, there's some suggestion that maybe what's what happens is that that the brains of people with hoarding disorder are more wired in a more complex way, in a in a way where there are many more connections, and so the association they have with any given object is much more complex than it is for people who don't have hoarding disorder. And so my guess is, if I were to guess, and again, this is sort of conjecture, but but that's where the genetic component comes in. It's something about the way in which the brain's wired. So does that mean you have identified a gene that you can actually test for to say you're predisposed? Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not quite that simple. Um, the genetic studies haven't identified a gene, and it's likely that it, there are multiple genes involved. So at this point, the the research just isn't um, sophisticated enough to be able to identify exactly what kind of genetic problem this is related to. 
which suggests it's probably polygenetic, that there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on that that sort of combines together to produce um, produce these information processing deficits that we see in hoarding. And so what I'm understanding from what you're saying, Dr. Frost, is that, you know, you're, you may have a mother who has hoarding behaviours and then you have somewhat of a genetic predisposition to it, but that doesn't also necessarily mean that you're guaranteed to grow up and follow in the same footsteps, is it? That's right. That's right. The probability is higher than it would be if you did not have a parent with hoarding problem, but it's certainly not uh, guaranteed that you would develop a hoarding disorder. Now, one of the things we find, too, is that children who grow up in hoarded homes op- often react in an opposite way. Um, and, and in part, that may, they may still have the genetic predisposition, but the stresses and struggles of growing up in a hoarded home had such an impact on them that, that they make, make sure that they don't follow that path when they're adults. Yeah. Mm. One thing I'm curious about, and this is something that you're probably a bit more aware of, Bonnie, having been to Dr. Frost's workshops before, under hoarding disorder, are there different categorised types of things that separate different hoarders from each other? Like, is it categorised by the different things that they like to hold on to and acquire? Not really. Um, For the most part, people with hoarding disorder tend to save everything that sort of comes into their purview. Now, each person may have some higher percentage of some kinds of things. We, we in the, one of the first studies we did, we looked at the nature of the things that were, were hoarded. And we asked people to, to rate how frequently they saved a list of 100 things. And we asked people who didn't hoard to tell us the, the, the extent to which they saved each of that list of 100 things. And although the people who hoarded rated everything higher, the ranking of them was the same for people who hoarded and didn't, meaning that people who don't hoard save exactly the same things in the same percentages, except the percentages are significantly lower. So the same ordering of percentages. So uh, papers, uh, containers, uh, clothes were the, is some of the, the more, most frequent things, and they were the most frequent things for people who hoard and people who don't. Uh, and people who are, it, it tend to hoard everything. It's not it, there aren't themes really for the most part for people who suffer from the disorder. There is one exception to that, however, and that one exception is when animals are hoarded. And so we see we see people who hoard animals um, uh, um, have a, a somewhat different profile. So people who hoard animals tend to hoard just one species. They also look different demographically. Uh, they tend to be female, and for object hoarding, it's sort of split evenly between males and females. They tend to not show up. The, the hoarding behavior doesn't show up till much later in life. And, and with hoarding objects, the behavior shows up fairly early. The average age of onset is somewhere around 16 years old. So the profile for people who hoard animals is a little bit different. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, you were also mentioning that, you know, there is this genetic predisposition for some people, but what are the other triggers and things that can contribute to hoarding behaviour? My question specifically is around trauma and like post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that. Is that Does that play yeah. a big influence? Well, we're not entirely sure. What we do know about this is that people with hoarding disorder are more likely to have experienced a trauma than people who don't have hoarding disorder. 
So in one of our recent studies, we found about 50% of people with hoarding disorder has suffered some kind of severe, serious trauma in their life, significantly more than people, say, with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, but the interesting thing is that, or was in this particular study, was that the percentage of, of people with hoarding disorder who were diagnosable with post-traumatic stress disorder was no different than it was for people with obsessive compulsive disorder. So despite having more trauma in their background, they didn't have a higher, higher likelihood of developing PTSD. So that's led us to speculate that perhaps hoarding behavior might be some, in some ways buffer against the development of PTSD symptoms. Now, that's, that's speculation. We, we haven't done any research to, to really follow up on that hypothesis. So, but, it is, but it is a curiosity that, um, that is worth exploring to find out, it, you know, does, does, the, does the clutter somehow buffer or, or give them some kind of relief from the potential um, PTSD symptoms? We, we just don't know the answer to that question, but it is a possibility. More studies to be done. Oh, yeah. Always more research, isn't there? <laughs> exactly. So if people were to ask you what causes hoarding, do you generally say, well, it's about 50% genetic, 50% trauma? Uh, no, we can't really say that the trauma caused the hoarding. The trauma may precipitate it. And because only half of the, of the people with, with hoarding disorder have a history of trauma, it, it's not a real clear etiological factor. It's, it's a background factor and maybe one that precipitates hoarding or but we just don't know. And as for causes, it, it's really hard at this point to, because not much research is done on anything other than the genetic component. We do know that now there's some some new research on the nature of attachments and and attachments that occur early in life. So people with hoarding disorder report a, a history of of a lower level of family warmth when they grow up. Maybe that's associated. We don't know for sure, but it's it's just early in the research in that area. There are also some research now coming out, out uh, much of it out of Australia, for instance, uh, looking at attachments, early attachments in life to uh, parents, for instance, that may contribute to, um, to the development of hoarding. But it's still in its infancy, this research. Oh, I'm just so fascinated. It's just such an interesting um, field. Yeah, well, you know, psychology in general, it's just, it's amazing how we're all so different and all the factors that contribute to the life that we lead. And how we're made up in our composition and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and how mm. things, you know, experiences that we have manifest and like, change you know can change the path you're on or open up different pathways to you it's just it's so fascinating like you say the research is never done there's always so much to be learned mm. one of one of the impressions yeah. that I've been given when speaking with people about hoarding disorder is some people feel like it's not like curable is there such thing as a recovered hoarder what what is the relapse rate around people with hoarding behaviors yeah good question we don't really talk about cure because because we don't know what causes it we can't really say that we cured some someone of it. There is plenty of evidence that we can help people manage it, and there's plenty of evidence we can get someone to the point that it's not an issue anymore. So that's pretty clear. But um, it it is a disorder that is harder to treat than obsessive compulsive disorder, for instance. 
the outcomes we get from the from the treatments we have aren't quite as good as they are for obsessive compulsive disorder, but they still are substantial. So we can improve the lives of 70 to 80 percent of people who undergo treatment. Um, now, in the end of treatment, often they still have some symptoms, so they still may need some good ongoing maintenance and some work on on clutter issues. So. Uh, we still have a long way to go in terms of coming up with a, a, a treatment that, that will come close to a cure. So what is the current treatment that is giving you the best success rate? Well, the, the current treatment that's, that is the most uh, carefully tested is cognitive behavior therapy. Um, and it's deli- it can be delivered in a number of different formats, individual formats, group formats, and we've even developed a, a peer-facilitated self-help group uh, based on cognitive behavioral therapy principles that seems to work fairly well. Um, in fact, there are a lot of, uh, co- we call them Buried in Treasures workshops, and there are a lot of them now going on in, in Australia and, and elsewhere around the world. Um, and, and so there's quite a, a pretty good evidence base for these kinds of treatments. There are new developments in terms of treatments that focus on some of the cognitive rehabilitation necessary, uh, other treatments focusing on uh, compassion-focused approaches because of the stigma that's, that's involved here. Um, and, and all of them show some degree of promise, but, but the research is not as far along as it is for cognitive behavior therapy. Mm. All right. I think it's probably time that we take a quick break because we've got some great questions coming up, but we love to put all of our guests on the spot and ask them about their clutter confessions. Clutter confessions. <laughs> okay, so uh, the clutter confession for me is I, I go to a lot of conferences. Mm-hmm. And at every conference, I get a lanyard with my, with my name on it. And so I have collected, I don't know, dozens of these. And, and so I hang them on the door in my, in my office. And so each one of them carries with it some memories. And so that's, that's sort of what, 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 the, what the attachment is for me. I was just trying to, trying to think of, you know, like it being in your office makes sense because of the, the um, work you do. Yeah, of the work you do. But then I was trying to think of other ways you could like display it in your house. If you have one of those like big plastic trees, you could hang all the lanyards off the different branches. It could be your Christmas tree, <laughs> uh, yeah. a lanyard Christmas yeah, tree. Yeah. Really right. like Oh, right. that's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Sure. <laughs> You're going to have sure. to send us a photo of that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> we want to hear what weird, wacky and wonderful things you've held on to. So if you have a clutter confession, please get in touch. Head to our Facebook page, Little Home Organized Podcast. And there are instructions there. You basically just send us an audio message. We'll keep it anonymous and play it on an upcoming episode. Okay, so back with our amazing guest, Dr. Frost. This is a really heavy question, and I'm sure you get it a lot. How do you help a family member who is hoarding but doesn't see a problem? Do you just leave it alone and know that you've got a really big job to do when they pass? Good question, and it's a tough spot for family members, and there are many family members who find themselves in this spot. And there are a couple of things I would say in, uh, there are some great um, books out there on dealing with 
reporting problems that are severe where there's not a lot of recognition of the problem. And they follow, follow a, a, a program called harm reduction treatment for hoarding. And it involves forming a team of people. And the idea is to increase communication with the family member. Uh, people who, who pursue harm reduction tr- therapy will train uh, family members in motivational interviewing, which is one of the things we use in the cognitive behavior therapy for hoarding disorder. And the idea here is to help the person recognize the ambivalence that they experience because most people with hoarding disorder, even the ones who don't want help or, or don't appear to recognize this as a problem, they do experience some degree of ambivalence. They know the way other people view their home and they feel a sense of rejection and criticism, intense feelings of criticism from other people. And so that tells us that, yeah, they recognize there's something going on here. And so the idea is to identify this ambivalence. Well, there's something wrong, but I don't want to deal with it. I don't want the pressure from my family member. I don't want the criticism from my family member. The difficulty that family members find themselves in is that without knowing how to approach it, without being trained in motivational interviewing, the easiest way to deal with the problem, and most of us who who are trained to help people look for the easiest way to help them. And and for people who don't know about hoarding disorder, the easiest way is just to tell them, look, just throw it out. But by doing that, we don't get at the other side of the ambivalence. Yeah, I don't want to have to worry about this thing, but at the same time, I want to keep it because and then the reasons come out. And so the idea here is that in, in, uh, that, that the family members, when the person says, I can't do it, what happens typically is that the volume of the, uh, the criticism, the volume of the suggestions or the, the request to throw things out gets elevated. And then any other kind of pressure that can be brought to bear, either criticism or shaming the person or trying to coerce them or trying to throw things out without their knowledge, that's, that's really the only tools in the person's toolbox if they don't know motivational interviewing. And, and those tools we know don't work. And they, they, tend, they tend to backfire. And what happens is the family relationship fractures. And now the person is all by themselves and no one visits. And the, other, the one thing we do know is that when no one visits the home of someone with a hoarding disorder, the clutter gets worse. So one of the things we tell family members is maintain a relationship with your family, with your loved one, and visit. And you don't have to say anything about the clutter. You don't have to talk. You don't want to pressure them into anything. But by visiting, you are making a positive impact on the person and their attempts to clean. Because when we um, contract with someone and, and go to their home, they know we're expecting a home that's in bad shape. But when we get there, they'll tell us, you know, I just spent three hours cleaning up. So they, they do react to visitors in the home, as all of us do. So, so it, it's a, somewhat of a complicated answer, but, but learning more about hoarding is key to family members uh, in knowing how to react. And certainly engaging a therapist and developing a harm reduction program uh, for yourself for even for a loved one who doesn't want to participate is a useful exercise and can go a long way to um, facilitating eventual help for the problem. 
That's really interesting about the um, when you when you stop visiting them that it gets worse and it makes complete sense. Like it's it's um, yeah. yeah, I can't believe I didn't really know that before. But that's well, we yeah, do have really that sense of you know you know I think of it as pride, but it might be different for other people. When someone comes into your home, you're welcoming mm. them in, welcoming them into your space, and yeah, maybe we oversimplify how much of a big impact that can really have. So that's that's, that's really a, great to that's know. That's a simple way to help your loved one who is hoarding and who maybe doesn't want to acknowledge that there's a problem or do something about it, but that's a simple way for you to help them is just by going and visiting and just sitting there. there with them. Yep. That's great. Yep, exactly. Now, Dr. Frost, if you see hoarding tendencies in your child – how do you how do you even begin to address that? What are some of the, the things that you should consider? Well, when we don't know too much about early behavior. We do we have seen hoarding in young kids. So and and for the most part, it's pretty easy to tell that this behavior is out of the ordinary. So child a child who gets exceptionally emotionally um, um, upset when anything is thrown away, even a piece of mud from their shoe. Um, it, it, that the kind of emotional reaction is so extreme that parents really know, you know, there's something going on here. You know, all kids save stuff and all kids like to save the boxes that things come in and play with them and, and so forth. But what happens is that typically the interest in those objects drops out in short order. Um, and so we don't know if in young kids that, that that interest is just there or whether right from the start, whenever this starts, it's just the emotion is just really way out there in terms of the attachments. Now, it, it gets us into a really interesting area of hoarding about the nature of attachments, because we know that the, the these kinds of attachments are of various kinds. So one sort of category of them that that is quite interesting is is that the, the sense in which possessions offer the opportunity for something in the future and, 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 and have relevance to the person's identity. And sometimes that has to do with their past identity. So there, there is some, some ideas developing about the way in which this attachment forms and the importance of the attachment. So um, and this is this is something that the ideas have been kicking around for a long time. If you're familiar at all with uh, the French novelist Marcel Proust, um, Proust wrote a um, a work called Remembrance of Things Past, and in it was a story uh, of him being out somewhere and eating um, a Madeleine cookie, and that cookie brought him back to his childhood when he remembered visiting an aunt who fed him tea and, and Madeline cookies. And it, the interesting thing about it is that that experience, that sensory experience of tasting the cookie, brought back the memory in an intense way. It wasn't just remembering his aunt. It wasn't just remembering that episode, but it was a visceral kind of transportation back to that that time when he felt the way he did then that I mean the comparable experience for most of us I think is when we hear a song from our childhood so if you hear a song from your childhood it brings back yeah a memory but it brings back more than that it's a visceral kind of experience where you feel the way you felt when you were listening to that song as a teenager a young teenager and that's the kind of that's the kind of experience that that many people with hoarding disorder have at the site of a possession. 
That's a really great way of explaining it. I don't I'm going to give a little bit of TMI here, too much information, <laughs> but I use this specific soap when I was in labor and now every time I smell it, it takes me back uh-huh. and it actually makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, imagine that it was something that brought you back to the time when, you know, your child was a year old and everything was magic and everything was special. And the idea of getting rid of that and never experiencing that, that, that feeling again and how hard it would be to give that up, that, that past that, that is je- regenerated by this object. Yeah. I guess a similar thing that I could relate to that in like a positive way would be like when you look at a photo album that you haven't looked at in a really long time and that takes you back and you just, you know, you really feel mm-hmm. you, the so positively overwhelmed. It's a nostalgic feeling, but I understand that especially now as a mum with three kids that are, you know, five, four and two and I'm out of the baby phase and I do get that little pang sometimes where I look at something Mm -hmm. that was a newborn thing and I think, oh, I'm not going to do that again because I'm done with that. So I can, I can see that identity wrap up in the stuff. Yeah, exactly. All right. So unfortunately we are running out of time, but we of course have to ask for the people who are listening out there, if they are in a situation where they think that they need help and that they identify hoarding behaviours in themselves, where do they find a specialised therapist? What recommendations would you have? Um, One of the best places to look is the International OCD Foundation. And uh, they have a therapist finder. And I think that therapist finder probably will cover Australia as well. Um, Australia has a lot of resources for dealing with hoarding especially throughout the East Coast. There many of the towns uh, have hoarding uh, task forces or or hoarding coordination uh, 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 committees that that offer help and resources. So um, there's quite a bit out there in local communities, as well as the universities. There are people at Swinburne in in Melbourne. There are people at Flinders in, uh, in Adelaide. There are people at the University of Sydney or the University of New South Wales um, and Deakin University. So there, there are quite a few people in, hoard, in, um, in Australia doing hoarding research and, and research on treatment and treatment outcome. Great. And then also I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you know of some good <laughs> books as well, Dr. Frost, maybe some of them that you've written. <laughs> what yeah, books would you yeah. recommend? Well, one that I was mentioning before on harm reduction is written by Michael Tompkins and Tamara Hartle, and it's um, it's a it's a book that describes. It's called Digging Out is the mm. title, and it describes the harm reduction program. Uh, so it's a it's a, a quite a good book. Um, I've got that. We one. have a book out called uh, Buried in Treasures, uh, which is used for the Buried in Treasures workshops. So these workshops, um, each week of the workshop deals with a different chapter of the book. And so everyone reads the chapter in the book and does the exercise. Some of the they do the exercises together in a group. Um, and we have some pretty good data on the uh, efficacy of, of that program. Um, and so those are a couple of books that are that are worth getting. And, and our book stuff is a, more of a book for the general public talking about this problem in a, in a very different way. A lot of cases we talk about and, and some of the people we talk about um, in, a, in a way that's different than you see in, you know, in most uh, research or, or clinical studies. 
I have to admit, Stuff was one of the first books that I read on hoarding disorder that really opened my eyes to that different viewpoint that people had. And the one thing that always stands out in my mind is it's Irene, isn't it? The, the main subject yes. of the book, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the yogurt containers and how she couldn't put clean yogurt containers into the recycling bin because then they'd be sad that they weren't being kept with the yogurt yeah. containers that were being kept. And that was just revolutionary for me. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We see a lot of uh, anthropomorphism. I was about to say, but I didn't want to get the word wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Lily's Lily's frequently saying words wrong. She thinks that decor is decor. No, it's so funny. I don't know how I managed to get to, you know, my age and I've been saying decor And get through a degree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it has been so fabulous talking with you today. Excited to speak with you hopefully again soon, but unfortunately we have run out of time for today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Wow, what an amazing episode with Dr. Randy Frost. I think it's time for this week's tidy task though. So what we would like you to do for your tidy task this week is we would like you to get informed about hoarding disorder. So grab a copy of Randy's book, Stuff or Buried in Treasures, or if you're really into some meaty material, the Oxford Handbook of Hoarding and Acquiring, Dr. Frost's most recent book. Join a group online about hoarding or clutter. And remember that behind every disorder is a human being who deserves your love and support, just like anybody else. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're so glad you chose to have us in your ears. And remember, progress, not perfection. See you later. Bye. Hey, we'd love to keep the conversation going. Head over to the Little Home Organised Community Group on Facebook, ask questions, find motivation, and share your before and afters. And if you enjoyed the show, please help us keep it going by hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's free and ensures you do not miss an episode. But if you really want to share the love, leave us a rating and review. Trust me, it makes all the difference in the world. 